1: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for November 24th, 2016, the safe and special place edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. John Dickerson of Face the Nation is here with me in the Slate DC studio hello John Hello David John is resplendent in an orange tie It is uh, very beautiful There's not a yellow America or red America nice There's friend. just an orange America <laughs> um, And from the New York Times Magazine Is Emily Bazelon who is in New Haven probably Hello Emily
3: Yeah. Uh, but- <laughs> hello I'm wearing purple That's You're- across the color wheel yeah. from orange isn't it yeah. Is it?
1: Really? Really? Mm. I don't know. I don't know how the color wheel I think works. So. No,
3: that's wrong. It's orange and blue and yellow and purple. I take it back.
1: Forget um, that. But you also represent, there is no red America or blue America, just purple America in your case. So you're even more accurate to the times. <laughs> on this week's GabFest, on this week's GabFest, a lot of white guys named Mike. We will examine Trump's appointments and consider what they portend for his administration. Then... Was one of those mics, Mike Pence mistreated when he went to see Hamilton? What is the obligation of the citizen towards our elected leaders? The ruler. Disagree towards our rulers. Then could Trump actually harm the press? How would he do it? Emily has a new article about that coming out. We'll talk about it. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter and in Slate. Plus, we'll talk about some of our favorite Thanksgiving. Traditions. I think we've talked about this every year, but we'll do it again because we're so good at Thanksgiving traditions. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash gabfest. We also have our conundrum show live in Brooklyn next week. That show is sold out, but you can still get us conundrums. You can uh, send us conundrums at gabfest at slate.com or at slate gabfest on Twitter. And please do use hashtag conundrum if you're sending it either by email or on Twitter. The transition, week two, we've got Mike Pence as VP, Mike Flynn as National Security Advisor, Mike Pompeo as CIA Director. Then there's a Jeff and a Steve. White guys are finally getting a chance in America. So, uh, Emily, what does – the appointment of John Decker just waved. We're waving at each to other. No, I, uh, to I thought you were was, waving. I, you I thought as you were waving as a fellow white guy. Yeah, it? yeah.
4: No, I want I, I want more positions for the translucent like me. <clears throat> There's surely not. They're, they could go. They could be even whiter if they uh, hired me.
1: Um, so Emily, let's start with Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions, who has been. Uh, Put forth as attorney general by Donald Trump, he will have to pass Senate confirmation. He is a senator, so and he will be confirmed by a Republican majority Senate. So it seems likely he will be confirmed. But who knows? Um, what does the appointment of Sessions imply about uh, Trump's legal policies?
3: Well, it's a reward to a loyalist because Sessions was one of the first senators who backed Trump. And it is a. Uh, it suggests a Justice Department that is going to be very harsh about immigration. Sessions opposes a lot of legal forms as well as illegal forms of immigration. That was a part of Trump's platform that he was in full support of. And he also has a long history of trying to take the vote away, particularly from black people. So his racially insensitive, you know, racist remarks in the 80s have gotten a lot of attention because they were the main reason he was denied a federal judgeship in 1985 um, when a couple of Republican senators crossed the aisle. And voted with the Democrats to deny him that position. But he also, um, as U.S. Attorney in Alabama, tried to prosecute some African American Get Out the Vote organizers who were trying to mail absentee ballots. He accused them of fraud. There was this big investigation. A bunch of elderly Black people were bussed along the way and questioned. And in the end, the whole thing fell apart. You know, there were like 14 slightly irregular ballots. Nothing really came of it, but. That history goes along with a lot of statements he's made since then about, you know, this made up idea of voter fraud being a real problem in the United States. And that's very troubling because it's the job of the Justice Department to protect civil rights traditionally. And even though the Justice Department doesn't have the same role in protecting voting rights as it did before the Supreme Court took away Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act in 2013, Justice Department policies about voting... Still matter a lot. And so, you know, we are looking at a Justice Department, which could be not doing civil rights work the way we think of that there also is the whole fair housing realm to consider There's school desegregation. And then there's crime. There are sort of, you know, will harsh drug prosecutions come back? Um, When John Ashcroft was attorney general under Bush, he had a policy that in the U.S. attorney's offices, the prosecutors were always supposed to charge the highest felony they thought they could prove. And that is a bid toward a lot of long sentences. And and Sessions has said that um, there are not enough people serving enough time in prison, as opposed to the kind of bipartisan push for for reducing mass incarceration. So those are the things I've been thinking about.
4: I would add there's also corporate work that the Justice Department does in policing yes. and their ongoing cases. Um, So both going forward and also with the, the antitrust, cases, division. Anti- antitrust division and also some other fraud stuff, too. So mm-hmm. that's just one other one other element of this I think to your point, David, about the confirmation, while it's pretty clear that he's going to get confirmed, although I oh, and one other thing I want to add is also he is a supporter of the Patriot Act, Warrantless Wiretaps, Metadata Collection, the debate that's going to take place over uh, – and I don't – Emily, you, t- you let me know where the Justice Department – kind of would weigh in on those things. Obviously, we know from the Bush administration the legal cover that the Justice Department can give for certain federal actions on the anti-terrorism right. front. But I just wonder where the rubber specifically meets the road in the new Justice Department. The but Office of I,
3: Legal Counsel.
4: Right. So Remember, like the yeah, where John you was?
3: Yu. That's mm-hmm. in the Justice Department. Mm-hmm. And, and That's like the, the, the sort of advisory to the president and his lawyers. It'll be interesting to
1: Department. see whether they try to use it in the same way that the Bush administration did. I mean the Bush administration had certainly the the kind of excuse that of nine eleven and of very active wars that we were engaged in and they and that gave them a sense of moral cover that they that they used. It'll be yeah. a little bit harder Moral for, cover? Yeah. Moral cover. Yeah. I think they thought that it was that, that that it was that given the circumstances it was our right for them to sign off on these things which were clearly wrong because expedient circumstances require or allow for allow for expedient morality but i i'm interested if you know trump certainly has put forth a world which is just as fearful and terrifying and dangerous as it was after 9 11 but the actual facts of the case are not so for at least for american (laughs) citizens living in the united states and i don't i'm wondering if they're going to be able to get away with as much in that
4: based on the my interview with mike pence this weekend about waterboarding it's now a live issue again. Yeah, I mean, we words, bring he's up that actively, actively seek to reinstate waterboarding. As near as I could tell from his answer, which was not definitive, but it was not. I mean, he had the opportunity to, uh, when I well, asked he him. he wasn't
3: ruling it out. He definitely wasn't ruling it out.
4: Yeah, I was trying to find a, de- a description for what's between not ruling it out and actively considering it, because I think he did more than not rule it out. Inviting it. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yes. And because, you know, that's the president-elect's position, it's Mike Pompeo's position that it should come back. Uh, I think Sessions is on board with that, too. So, they hold that position now without 9-11. I mean, they think the circumstances are urgent. They think that any minute there's going to be a huge attack and therefore this needs to be in place again. So for them their circumstances are urgent. For the larger public, whether the circumstances are urgent or not for the larger public is irrelevant. I
1: I, I almost think like one of the most interesting questions is the ability of the Trump administration. So Donald Trump as candidate was a fear-mongering candidate. He was somebody who sought to increase people's sense of insecurity and fear and anxiety all the time and that, that we were constantly dangerous. And as president, is your policy going to be to foment that fear because that allows you to do things that you want to do? It, it just p- puts people on edge. It may, may means people may want the kind of authoritarian personality that you like to project. Or are you a – Now that you're president, is it like everything's good? We've made America safe. Everything's great. And so you don't want to project that. And I'm not sure which direction he's going to go.
3: Well, don't you think he'll go in different directions at different points? I mean, if they get into trouble with their favorability ratings, they seem very willing to manipulate information and feed lies to a somewhat sometimes supine press. And then you can use that to fearmonger if you need to. And you can also go start a war. You can go... Gin up the kind of conflict that creates that sense of fear.
4: The interesting thing about Sessions is um, confirmation is even though it, he's likely to be confirmed, it will be perhaps the the first, or if not the first, the biggest venue for a conversation about the questions of race and what the Trump administration and the president believe. It'll be public. He'll be questioned by all the Democratic members of the Judiciary Committee in which all of these issues that that have been brought up here and there will have one central focused place for him to answer for the questions about what is the alt-right? Why would you have somebody who gave a platform to the alt-right as a part of his professional career sitting as a senior advisor to the president? On and on and on. So I think the public conversation, then the challenge to the Democrats will be if they can ask questions that are illuminating as opposed to you know just like theater. I guess my point here is a lot of people said, oh well, the confirmation is is set and it's done and he's going to be confirmed. But that I feel like skips over the public education opportunity for both. For everyone, Republicans and Democrats, through Sessions is conversations that he's going to have to have in public at his confirmation.
3: Right, especially because Steve Bannon doesn't have to get confirmed. So right now, Sessions is the kind of vector for that questioning.
1: Trump has also been floating names or the transition team has been floating various names. Mitt Romney, of course, met with Trump last week, this week. Saturday. Saturday, time, time, time Time is a flat circle. I'm totally lost in where I am. And Nikki Haley is also apparently under consideration for secretary of state. Both of those would be more establishment kinds of Republicans who people skeptical of Trump, especially on the right, might be pleased with. Michelle Ree apparently is a leading candidate for secretary of education, which as a current parent of Washington, D.C. public school kids, I think would be great. I think she'd be fascinating as secretary of education. That would be I would I would not just merely tolerate that. I would applaud that. She's a incredible character, real force of genius. But do you think these, the, particularly in the case of, of Romney, John, do you think that's that's just gamesmanship? That's just a show and there's really no chance that a Romney could be Secretary of State given Trump's, given him with the terrible things he said about Trump and Trump's history of addictiveness?
4: I think you're right to be skeptical in this specific in- instance. And since we're all figuring out how to cover, or not figuring out, but reminding ourselves in public about the ways to cover the Trump administration, I think it's a more broadly, everything that comes out about this kind of stuff should be taken with great skepticism and, you know, assume that it's a leak for a purpose, not for truth. In this case, however, I think that Romney is actually in under consideration. I don't think he would have gone just as a show on uh, Saturday, I think he actually is under consideration for secretary of state. I don't have that sense about Nikki Haley. I think one other thing I should add is to remind what happens sometimes in Washington is when a name like Kelly Ayotte gets floated um, for De- secretary of defense. There was a period in there. It may not even be the Trump people who are floating the name. It could very well be allies of hers on the, on the Hill. There's a lot of stuff that's going to be floated about what's going on. And, Often it's because lots of
1: people have different agendas and it's not actual reality. I'm not saying that Emily has been put forth as a Supreme Court, <laughs> potential Supreme Court. Not. I'm not definitely not saying that. <laughs> no, exactly. I haven't admitted that definitely yeah, not I, something I'm, I've said.
4: So anyway, I think the Romney thing is based on conversations I've had with people who were involved in this. I think that is more than just, you know, floating for the purpose of spin.
3: Well, you I'm sure know more about this than me, but I was struck by um, the, the kind of minor humiliation Trump Engineered for Romney in in saying that Romney really wants the job. There is something so delicious that Trump gets to create this image of Romney groveling before him. I wondered if that was the real purpose myself.
4: Uh, uh, he said that, by the way, in, in an off the record meeting, not uh, pub- publicly, just to give people some sense of um, just the just to put that in a little bit of context.
1: There was a, a piece in the New York Times. I think it was in the New York Times saying man trump has made this such a spectacle such a public process i don't see no, that it doesn't ridiculous. seem that much it's that different that. from what's happened before right
4: no especially relative to his penchant for spectacle it's not that much of a spectacle at all i mean you know is donald trump making a well, spectacle by having all the cameras was
3: like building suspense right They all do that. I mean, he was like on Sunday, you know, keeping the media. I'm not saying this in a complaining way. I didn't have to stand there outside. But, you know, the sense of like, oh, it'll be today. But no, it won't be today. That's sort of drawing out of suspense and attention. Very familiar one here is from The Apprentice and from parts of the campaign.
4: It's not that different than what happens before. And by the way, press doesn't have to do it. Doesn't have to take the bait. Can just say, you know, we'll do it when they name it. You know what? You can float all the damn things you want. We don't care. We have free will in this life. And so I think that we could choose not to talk about certain things or frame certain things in ways that are useful as opposed to framing them in the way that the administration, the incoming
1: administration would like. Emily, is there anything interesting to say about Mike Flynn or Mike Pompeo? So Mike Flynn, who'll be be the national security advisor and Mike Pompeo, who'll be the CIA director, Mike Pennell. Pompeo, who will be the secretary of Benghazi. So, John, I guess you want to say something interesting. Well,
4: I've been talking a lot, but just very quickly, Mike Flynn's uh, reputation is both as a disruptor and, you know, maverick of the kind that you might want in your organization to keep bringing you uncomfortable facts who will sometimes be really wrong, but other times break through groupthink. That's the upside. The downside is the people I've talked to who worked with him say he's not a like an organizational guy, and b that he is as prone to wild, assertions about things that are not factually accurate and that's a big problem because his job or the job as it used to be conceived of the national security advisor is to coordinate between the various i mean you're the old-fashioned version of the job was you were an honest broker between state and defense and the and the intelligence uh, agencies if you are not and you are a free-ranging actor the big challenge for the trump campaign presidency is that you have lots of people with big egos in jobs that require coordination and everybody getting along and not a lot of freelancing and that'll be a challenge with him you know it's one thing to use fake news for political purposes it's another thing if you use fake news to you know send special operations troops into places or um when you're dealing with actually having to make decisions where life and death are on the line
1: it, it also feels like one of the issues with Flynn is that he does seem to have an animating ideology, which seems dangerous, that he really believes that Islam and sort of the spin outs of radical Islam and Islamic terrorism. There, I said it. Radical Islamic terror. I said that 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 is the most important way to look at the world rather than looking at this sort of what happens in a somewhat multipolar world after with a rise of lots of different competing kinds of nationalisms and lots of different ways, and that that radical Islam and the militancy and violence of that is is one manifestation of something that's happening globally, but it is by no means the only thing or the only way to explain what's happening. And if you have a theory of the case, it means that you sort of fit everything into it. And that is more troubling than if you or somebody who kind of comes in with a relatively open mind or a lot of flexibility about it. Anyway, you were going to say, Emily.
3: And he's conflating radical Islam with all of Islam. He's not making a careful distinction between the small minority of people who are dangerous and lots of peaceful Muslims, millions of them around the world. And that has been, for the last 15 years, a distinction the American government has been very careful about in an effort to cultivate allies and not denigrate an entire huge important world religion.
1: John, just on Mike Pompeo for one second. Mm -hmm. So Mike Pompeo, who will be a CIA director, if confirmed, has been a leading critic of Hillary Clinton on Benghazi, Mm -hmm. and sort of one of the, the pit bulls on that issue. Th- please tell me there is no chance that we're going to be continue to be litigating Benghazi in the Trump administration. I mean, she's, well, you, Hillary Clinton is a done political figure at this moment. Can, it, can, we yeah, can't possibly uh, be spending more time on this nonsense. Can I we? don't
4: think I don't think so. I think Pompeo's out. You know, he's off. He's got things to worry about at the CIA. And he's a supporter of uh, waterboarding, torture, enhanced interrogation techniques, whatever you want to call it. Um, so,
1: so he'll
3: have his hands full getting all of that lined up.
1: Yeah. Um, this episode of the Gaffest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating. Your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos, but it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GabFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting auraframes.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GabFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
4: I don't think there's any I don't think there's any interest. I think now look, can Hillary Clinton and Benghazi and all of that be used as a diversionary object? By forces that want to distract people by creating outrage to distract from something else? Sure. Uh, But do I think it's a real possibility? No. Uh, And also, by the way, every investigation, if you were to launch one of Hillary Clinton... I mean, one thing we should talk about is the extraordinary conflicts of interest between incoming President Trump and the Trump businesses and the backing down from at least Vice President Mike Pence in my conversation with him from major promises that Trump made about lobbyists and big donors serving in his administration, which Trump said he'd be fine if they did not. Now it's kind of an open question. Hillary Clinton had to disclose every foreign country that did business with the Clinton Foundation. So I asked if that, even just that rule, would apply to the Trump administration. In other words, if a foreign country or or a company owned or with interest, you know, connections to the to a foreign country did business with Trump businesses, shouldn't that have to be disclosed? Just keeping the exact same rule, let alone living up to the standard of a candidate who made his central platform draining the swamp and getting getting rid of the self dealing in Washington. Just. Simply retaining the basic qualification that Hillary Clinton had a secretary of state, which was so much talked about in the course of this campaign, the vice president elect wouldn't sign on even to that. So if Congress were being consistent, then that would be an, an area for inquiry. And anytime you bring up Hillary Clinton and, and her tenure, it would seem to me would, would just raise all of those
1: you know comparisons more acutely. So that might not be in their political interest. We definitely need to do a segment, which I guess we're not going to do this week, about Trump's self-dealing. We, we should have done it this week, but I guess we didn't plan it. But we should do that.
3: I was going to say that we have to talk about it at least for a minute, because just to note that just in the last few days, there have been reports about him making clear what business advantages he wants in Scotland, in possibly Argentina, there are two more help me out and he had some oh, indian India. and, uh... yeah and then his meeting in, with the japanese prime minister that ivanka went to i mean this is just an unbelievable potential for corruption and just a, a way of thinking about the presidency as this kind of revolving door of i'll give i'll get something from you. And maybe, you know, you'll get something from me. We've just not had that this before. So I bef- I agree, we need a whole segment on it. But David, I got to ask you, are you feeling as cheery about corruption as you normally do? Or is this something I, else?
1: I definitely am not as worked up over this Trump self-dealing as everybody else is. It is clearly unconstitutional and illegal for him to self-deal in the way he appears to be self-dealing. The trying to get you use his conversation with the president of Argentina to get Argentina to change some permitting, trying to get, you know, the British government to not build wind farms so it doesn't disrupt the views of his golf course, forcing uh, people to stay in his hotels or encouraging them to stay in hotels if they want to do business. That's just it's definitely a violation of the emoluments clause of the Constitution. But do I think that that is a, a massively big issue? Not really. Not it's not it's, it's not in my top 10 worries about the Trump administration. Uh, so
3: See, I think you're being short sighted because there are things what could come of this? What's the next step? The next step is that businesses and foreign governments are making policy decisions to benefit Trump's businesses that are not decisions they would otherwise make and that have implications for other that, that have wider effects and that. Some businesses or states are getting favored um, simply because they do things like make sure that the view isn't being blocked at a golf course. And that's that is scary. That is like banana republic world that, you know, is not familiar to Americans.
4: I I think there are a couple of ways in which this is uh, important. One is the evidence in which national security policy is shifted based on business interests rather than state actor interests. Uh, There was a report that General Flynn changed his position on Turkey after his uh, business became – after a meeting he had over there with the government. If your decisions are being made for the wrong reasons, that's not good. The second thing though is David Frum's point, which he made this weekend, which is that the Trump administration for its own good and Republicans who have interests in passing legislation signed by President Trump – Who's not um, under scandal is that you have to scandal proof the Trump administration that all of these interflowing connections create the opportunity for scandal, not just from his enemies, but from people who are not Trump loyalists and and that it's going to be a mess that will that will hang over everything unless you. Put structures in place that you can at least point to or that clear up some of these problems. I'm not sure such structures can be put in place, but that it is, it should be, and this is where it gets interesting, not just on consistency grounds should Republicans in Congress want the kind of clarity – or more clarity from President Trump than they sought from Hillary Clinton. Not just because they want to be consistent with their beliefs, but because they want to get things done and not have a a presidency that is constantly having to get stuck with these kinds of questions and these issues. They should force and push for some kind of clarity. Now, whether that happens or not, we'll see. I I don't get the sense that it's something Donald Trump wants to deal with. And finally, Emily, can you just quickly for our listeners explain the emoluments clause and why – It's important and I'll add this other question which is if he has not liquidated his connection to all of his family holdings, wouldn't that run him into an emoluments clause problem even if he's not actively getting paid by a foreign country?
3: Yeah, probably. I mean, the emoluments clause, which has been dusted off from obscurity, says that no person holding any office of profit or trust in the American government shall accept of any present emolument, office or title of any kind, whatever, from any king, prince or foreign state. So during the Obama administration, when Obama was offered the Nobel Peace Prize, there was an internal legal memorandum written about whether he could accept it, In which um, which was also actually by a friend of ours, David Barron, who's now a judge on the First Circuit. And he said that corporations owned or controlled by a foreign government are presumptively foreign states under the Emoluments Clause. And so that suggests that, John, yes, you're right. If you have all of these Trump holdings, which are not in a blind trust, and Donald Trump Trump knows perfectly well when his businesses are benefiting, then you have this constant threat that the emolument clause is being violated. And the only problem with the emoluments clause is there's very little case law, and it's not clear who has standing to sue under it. And so the obvious remedy for this violation of the Constitution is impeachment. It's Congress. It's not really the courts, at least not thus far in American history.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: had a night out at the theater with his family, went to see Hamilton. Why not? He was not given tickets by the cast, as some celebrities are. He seemed to have been, someone bought them or bought them for him. As he was there, he was booed and slightly cheered, mostly booed by the crowd. And at the end of the show, he was treated to a small... Lecture from a member of the cast, the, the actor who's playing Aaron Burr, the lecture had been written by the show's creators and associates, and it asked the administration for tolerance and inclusivity and sort of warned that the administration or the campaign had not been conducted maybe so, so much. This episode has been much brooded about Trump himself escalated it with a series of tweets calling it harassment and then saying that the theater should always be a safe and special place. So, Emily, was it okay for – we're going to divide this up into things, to pieces. Was it okay for the cast to give Mike Pence a little speech?
3: Yes, I do think it was okay. First of all, it's the First Amendment, and they were expressing their political views and their concerns in a way that, you know, they had a platform to do. I have to say, I find this whole furor to be just honestly not that interesting. And also, I can't tell whether there's like a real set of questions here or whether this is just Trump harumphing and the rest of us responding to it.
1: What's the booing? OK, where the, yes, the again, audience is booing freedom
3: of expression. I mean, protests have a long tradition in American politics. They're a way for people to express their views and they're. There, it's not even a particularly potent way to express views. But I think that for political leaders to understand that in some settings, people fear and loathe them is not a bad pressure for them to experience. And, you know, I would say that if it was a Democrat in office, too, going somewhere that's uncomfortable for them. It's part of experiencing the country as a whole and understanding the effect that you're having in the places or among the groups of people who are not your fans.
4: It's also very much very much in keeping with the Hamiltonian. Um, basically, Hamilton in the musical heckles. Uh, is it James Savory? William Savory? I can't remember his name. But anyway, so I think this is a great test of an example of what Emily was questioning, whether there's any larger question or more important question. I think one of the things in covering the – The Trump administration and covering Donald Trump, who has his own, you know, 35 million people on Twitter and Facebook that he speaks to is to, you know, take the bouncing ball, grab it and move the conversation to useful territory. So as opposed to leaving it on the territory in which it's taking place, which is the Twitter war and whether the standards of the theater and all of that. It is, we should note, after a campaign in which Donald Trump successfully broke many of the norms of politics and polite society that then he wants to maintain the norms of the theater. I think that is a larger question, which is interesting, which is – we've talked about this before, is that as opponents and also as people are – I mean, what are the new norms? And is breaking norms part of a proper response? Or do you respond to somebody who is actively broken and breaking norms by holding tighter to your own because the values that are underneath them still exist? whether whether somebody else is um, maintaining them or not. So that's a separate question. I think here for me, what the bigger, larger question was, was there is a portion of the country that didn't vote for Donald Trump. There's a portion of the country that is... Scared by his presidency, there was this moment after Hamilton. But that's not an isolated incident. It's an it's uh, kids in uh, Macomb County shouting "Build the wall" and minority kids crying as a result. It's the priest in the homily two Sundays ago who talked about the three other times our parish had been challenged. One was the War of eighteen twelve. One was the Civil War, and one was the Second World War. All three were during wartime if that's the way people are feeling, then a president has an opportunity to go speak to the entire country, particularly a president who is so keenly appreciative of his own ability to read the country better than anyone else. So that's fine. He he read the country correctly and was elected as a result of it, but he read a portion of the country. His job now as president is to read the larger portion of the country. His success is, in some ways, you could argue, associated with being able to read the whole country. He has said he wants to bind up the wounds of the country. And what the Hamilton moment was about is whether the other part of the country that didn't vote for him and that is scared is being heard by the Trump administration – incoming Trump administration. Do they want to listen? Do, are they thinking about listening? Do they listen and say we'll get to that later? Are they listening and, and, and assuming it's all just sour grapes from people who didn't vote for him? All of those things are – it seems to me really interesting questions that this illuminates finally be for this reason. If the, one of the complaints about Barack Obama was that he ignored a portion of the country and consistently made them feel like he was not only ignoring them but thought they were idiots. If that was a huge mistake of Barack Obama's, why would you want to repeat that mistake? so i those I think are all larger questions that are illuminated by the by the Hamilton incident that get us past what I think Donald Trump would like, which is to have this be a fight about him versus some new york actors
1: well, and Mike Pence himself appears to have taken no offense. I don't know if it was on your show, John, or some somewhere else where he said this was fine and he he nudged his. Son, I think, while they were there, and said, "This is what democracy looks like," or something like that, when they were being uh, so he claims booed. he claims, yeah, okay, but you know that's that's the right thing to say. Obviously, there is no uh, free speech implication. It's clearly within the law. It's fine. What respect is owed to the office? Now he is not the vice president yet; he's the vice president elect. I do think it's it, it would be unsavory if every time president trump shows up anywhere where there are majority democrat voters that he's booed i i would find that troubling
3: why what's troubling about that
1: there should be a presumption that when someone is elected president they are elected to serve all of us they are our president that one of the things that i found most disturbing and and in donald trump's campaign was that moment where he said you're president about barack obama the president is our president every president is everyone's president and the more we treat the presidency as a, as a partisan position, mm-hmm. the more divide, divided the country becomes, the harder it is for, for us to have the the kinds of national unity that I think are valuable. And it becomes a weaker office for whenever your, your next president, your next democratic president, Emily, takes office. That is, it is, it is an undermined office because now it is, you're, everyone's in a position to say, oh, no, no, it's just that that, that president represents his part of the country, so I think one should be very cautious about about undoing the kind of respect for office and the dignity of office that the president is entitled to, even though it's somebody like donald trump who is who has violated norms and abused norms and himself did not respect the office of the presidency. I certainly would not if I were in a room with Donald Trump would not boo Donald Trump at this point. I would have as a candidate, I don't think I would now
3: hmm. I don't know. I mean, I think that free speech and expression is really important, probably matters more to me than some notion of respect for the presidency. And I also think it's a struggle to deal with the figure who himself so undermined that kind of respect. I mean, this is a person who came to prominence by spreading a lie about where... Yep. Barack Obama, the president at the time, was born. And so this whole notion that you continue to confer this sense of respect and dignity on someone who has had, someone for whom it's not reciprocal. I I mean, you know, this goes to Michelle Obama's line, which Hillary Clinton kept repeating about, you know, when they go low, we go high. I'm not actually sure that really got anyone anywhere. And surely there are some deeply held values that yes it is worth maintaining in the face of any kind of challenge to them but i think their (laughs) values about like human rights and civil rights and fighting for for those really not like whether we you know properly bow and scrape before donald trump who clearly wants that
4: now wait a minute now wait a minute wait david wasn't arguing for bowing and scraping so that's one of the things where in these debates, but there debates is also where,
3: a lot of fawning that, that goes may, on.
4: But that's not the con- That's not the conversation we were having. I think one of the challenges in in talking about this, and specifically with respect to what David was trying to do, and what I was talking about in terms of the norms that have been broken, and whether the response is to maintain the norms or to break them in response to, or break them a little. I don't know what the I don't know what the answer is, but definitely in the conversation, things get way off track very fast and. That doesn't do anybody any good. I think that it is perfectly reasonable to make a case that you maintain norms in certain contexts so that you can be clear-eyed and bright in other contexts. You can always haul in the most awful thing Donald Trump did and use it as a – pardon me – trump card in any conversation. And and that's – I worry that our ability to talk about this stuff just gets – Totally. Out of I'm
3: whack. also not even sure what we're arguing about anymore. Like, I, I don't know what out of whack me. Like, I don't know what that seems very abstract to me. So I just literally like don't know how to respond. because I don't know what you're what you. Mean well,
1: by that. if you went to the Alabama Supreme Court and you were covering something of the Alabama Supreme Court and they the Alabama Supreme Court enters, including Roy Moore before he was impeached or removed, you would stand because you stand for the court. The president enters the room. Don't you stand when the president enters the room? Whoever yeah. the president is, you stand when the president enters the room. That I mean, doesn't I'm seem, that doesn't totally seem hard. someone
3: who has a lot of trouble with the discomfort of breaking any kinds of those politeness conventions. But I also feel like that's not really the argument we're having. I mean, I don't I'm not sure why now we're on this ground. Like, would I, you know, start screaming and yelling if I was in a room with Donald Trump? No. Do I want to be in a room with Donald Trump? Not particularly.
1: Well, that's a good point. That's fine. It's not – don't show up. And you have no obligation. I don't think anyone has obligation to be be anything other than highly critical of things that he does that are wrong or that violate the norms of the United States or that are immoral. You should absolutely be highly critical. But I think what I'm trying to do is separate the sort of – the specific criticisms of things that the president does and his actions that he does and then kind of respect for the dignity of the office, which involves things like rising – not booing, saluting the flag, whatever those the, the kind of general the general norms of polite behavior to show that this is the person who is our president and we accord him the the respect due to him as our president in these circumstances of dignity. That doesn't Which, mean you have to bow and scrape and it doesn't mean you have to 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 take his views as uh, you don't have to agree with his views. But it it, it does imply a kind of level of respectful behavior
4: and that arguing for respect comes from the fact that 60 million people voted for him and just making the case for respect doesn't necessarily mean you're making a case for bowing and scraping that's my point is that um that recognizing that 60 million people voted for him doesn't mean you have to give up your critical faculties which is the way uh it's sometimes characterized by some
1: I don't even think it's that 60 million people voted well, for him. I Honestly, I think, I think it's that he's the, the, he's the president. I don't think it well, but he, that's he could have been. been he could have been the he'd been the secretary of interior and everyone else had been killed and he would never been elected anything. But, my, but the fact that he's the president accords well, that dignity. But it's my not point who is, voted for him.
4: But there's a system in place that that gets its authority and has its value based on the fact that we're a democracy and that we're we're a republic and that and that the vote of the people is the thing at the center of the respect you're talking about, which is different than just the, it being just the man himself.
3: I'm just still not sure what conversation we're having. I mean, are you saying that the protesters on Fifth Avenue should leave? Are you saying <laughs> that the people in the theater shouldn't have, you know, made a peep I like in public? It seems to me that people can express themselves in the face of Donald Trump in whatever way they want. Then you're in a more private setting. Is it likely that people are going to, you know, boo every time they are near him? No. In fact, the pressures of the office lend themselves much more to fawning all over the president. That's, you know, separate from Donald Trump. That's just the august nature of the office. People get really excited about being in the presence of the president. So it seems to me that the I just feel like this is a total straw man, essentially. Well, and to the extent there is a real issue here of people expressing themselves, I'd rather have them feel very free to express themselves right now than constrained.
4: So just as the final thing, I think that what we're trying to do here is figure out both what the line is in the specific case, but really the, the bigger, broader case. Um, and we haven't found it. We're not going to find it for a while. But I think everybody's wrestling with this. You know, we're going to keep doing it.
1: Donald Trump, as a candidate, promised to rewrite the libel laws of the United States. Should we take him at his word? Even if he can't rewrite the libel laws of the United States, how might he be a threat to the press? How might the new Trumpian environment be a threat to the free press? Emily has a very interesting article about this in The New York Times magazine. So, Emily, this isn't exactly the question you dealt with, but could Donald Trump, in fact, rewrite libel laws?
3: No, not really. I mean, that's the sort of red herring in all of this. That's not directly the president's power. Our libel laws come from the Supreme Court. The foundational cases from 1964. It's the famous case of New York Times versus Sullivan, where there was an ad promoting civil rights that had some minor factual errors in it. And the old common law standard meant that if speech was false, then you could win a libel judgment against the publisher and then get damages. And that was what the Alabama jury in this case did. And they awarded five hundred thousand dollars of damages against The New York Times. And the Supreme Court changed the standard to what's called actual malice, although that's really confusing because it sort of suggests like malice, like intentional wrongdoing. When in fact, the standard is that publishers and writers are protected as long as they didn't have knowing or reckless disregard for the truth. Um And so American law, because of that standard, is very protective of the free press. But what I was writing about and wrestling with was the fact that our protections are not foolproof. And in the last several years, Peter Thiel in particular and a couple of other very wealthy people have tried to and and in teal's case succeeded really in weaponizing the law in using it to go after critics or even take down an entire publication, um, which was what happened in the lawsuits that teal funded against gawker and Donald Trump is very much a part of that um, way of thinking about libel law. He's brought seven suits himself, he um talked about you know in the suit against the writer Tim O'Brien, using the law as a tool of revenge. So, you know, could that be furthered in his presidency? Is there? Yes, I think it could. And then the other dynamic I wanted to get at is the growing public mistrust for the press, which is very much on the rise, and that Trump's candidacy and I think his presidency is fueling. And so then you have juries that have a lot of disaffection for the press, and obviously for some good reason. I mean, the press has its faults. But if you have a world in which super rich people not bound by the traditional market forces are bringing lawsuits, and juries think really ill of the press, basically despise it, then you have a world of more legal vulnerability than we've experienced during a presidency in which it seems to me the administration is setting itself up to really try to manipulate information and both try to cow, and control the press. So that was the kind of set of concerns I was thinking through.
4: On the jury question, uh, there's a lot to work here on. But on the jury question, I wonder if it's true that people hate the press in broad terms, but like the press that they like, which is to say, would that phenomenon assert itself in a slightly different way in a trial, which is yeah, I hate the press. But when you see a certain set of facts and the good faith effort by the journalist and on and on in the specific detailed forms, whether people what their then real bedrock position is about the press in, 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 a, in a jury trial and whether it wouldn't be, you know, more understanding in the way that people hate Congress, but like their congressmen.
3: That's possible. It hasn't, there have been three big libel trials in the last eight months, and they've all gone against the press. So, this is Gawker, Rolling Stone, and the Raleigh News and Observer. And they're all like particular creatures, these cases, in which the press, um, I would say, particularly in the Rolling Stone <laughs> yeah, case, I was going to say, don't you want the press
4: good. to get <laughs> Right. Yeah. Wait, no,
3: that's a yeah, bad, no, that's, bad
4: set of examples. Uh,
3: right. The Raleigh News and Observer case maybe comes the closest, but what and I don't want to get too much in the weeds of that case. But what I would say about that case is that, you know, it's po- I can't I don't know enough to to tell you um what I would have decided if I'd been on that jury. But sometimes when you look at how the sausage is made in journalism, it's not very savory. I'm not I don't feel a lot of faith that juries are going to necessarily um See what we do on the inside with all our internal emails turned over, which is something that happens in these cases and conclude like, oh, this is great. This is, you know, how I hoped that it worked because it doesn't always look very high minded.
1: Right.
4: Are there ways that we can guard against that in the way we do work in the way every email I send now is um, I just assume is Mm -hmm. going to be on the front page of the paper? Yes.
3: Yes. That's I mean, I
4: certainly think in the, and this is off topic for which I apologize, but I think everything that I'm going to write and try to say, and Emily helped me think through this last week in a way that ultimately I wasn't able to do on, on the air. But I think, you know, just helping me think through the way I ask questions is every assertion I might go and find either an extra quote for or an extra fact for, because I think that we need to show our work. More and more in order to be, um, I mean, it's always what we should do, but I think going an even extra level because of the assault that's going to be on it.
3: Yes, I do think that. Um, Being really diligent in one's investigating or one's building of facts is super important. So is keeping caustic or mocking language out of emails as well as anything that actually seems biased. And I should say about the Raleigh News and Observer case that the paper stands by that story and is planning to appeal. And it's entirely possible that jury verdict will be reversed. But the jury wanted to award nine million dollars in damages against you know, an old newspaper. Like this isn't Gawker that was seen as like this new media irreverent creature. This is like an old newspaper doing investigative work. I think there's a warning in there.
1: There are a couple of other potential threats that the Trump administration represents the press. Another one is that we may move to a system where there are kind of official outlets. Jack Schaefer has a piece about the Pravda, Breitbart yes. becoming the Pravda of the Trump administration, where you have an official organ and that official organ is leaked information. It parrots the line of the administration, distributes lies and, and dresses them up as facts. So that's it's something that we haven't really had in this country for quite a long time. We've had, we've had outlets which are more or less sympathetic, but they've never one which is has acted as a kind of really an official organ for I mean, since probably the founders period or maybe yeah, maybe I, since maybe since the 19th century. Yeah. So that's one form of danger. Another is that Trump so far has not had a press conference as president elect and he is choosing his spots. He's not facing the, the press in a public and open and direct way in the way the president elect have. And. He might be able to skirt having a press conference, maybe indefinitely. He might be able to go his entire presidency without having a press conference. But historically, there has been this tense but ultimately useful relationship between the mainstream media outlets, particularly the recently television mainstream media outlets, and the presidency. And I wonder if he is going to fracture that in some way uh, that we don't expect. I suspect that he so craves media attention and media coverage that If he senses that the media coverage is weakening or there's less of it, he's going to find a way to make sure there's more of it.
4: I mean, I think he's definitely trying to change the norms. So I'm about to say something that, uh, you know, has to be taken in the proper context. So all presidents try to change and shape the field on which they're covered. So he will do like that. So but he will obviously do it in a way that is much grander and more of a challenge to the press than previous presidents. And the question is, will the snapback that usually happens with other presidencies happen in his presidency that the, the, what ends up happening is, OK, you try not to have press conferences uh, or you try to go around the press. I was just reading something from um, Ben Bradley's conversations with Kennedy in which he writes Kennedy a note and says, you know, that interview you did with the network news anchors was really great. And there's and it made Bradley wince because he thought we could never have conveyed what you conveyed in that television press conference in print and so he felt like his institution was dying as a result of the power of television and kennedy wrote back and said yeah we've been trying to find a way to go around you bastards for a long time and now we've finally found it <laughs> and so donald trump will operate in that same process. However, Kennedy needed Bradley, he needed the papers and he read them every morning because at some point, you start to be on the losing end, you start to need to get your message out, you start to need the validation of something other than your loyalists. Now, those are the normal rules. A lot of the normal rules that we thought would apply in politics were broken during the campaign. Governing is different than campaigning. So to the extent we think normal things are going to constrain and shape a presidency, I think we should be really careful about saying that they will. I guess one my final point is on something like press conferences and whether he will hold them. You know, there was a lot of speculation for a while that he might not participate in the debates at all. And not only did he participate in the debates, he tried to reshape them, disrupt them, bring the the Clinton accusers to the debate. I think we'll see a lot of that. I think we will see. You could imagine a press conference in which the first 20 minutes – strike well, 20 because he goes long – … are his attack on the press, a press conference that starts by him saying, I said this, you covered it this way, totally dishonest, totally dishonest, in which he will get all of the cables and probably maybe even all the broadcast networks to broadcast his 20-minute attack on the press, the same way they broadcast, the cables anyway did, his opening of his hotel in Washington, which I can't remember what thing he pretended it was going to be about, but it was essentially the opening of the hotel, which he got them to broadcast for free. You know, everybody has to be careful about not taking the bait. And the bait is something that distracts from keeping the eye on the ball, which is how the new administration and its policies are going to affect the the people in this country. And that's just something we're going to have to be really sharp about.
1: I, one thing I'm hoping for is that the country will become bored with him that that you ultimately just don't want to look at the same person over and over again and spend that much time with somebody and hear their same tropes i mean that's what marriage is for that's not it's, we we get one of those the rest of it is is uh why would you want that and i assume that people are going to start to feel that way i already feel that way about trump i mean i don't i never watch him anymore because of this but uh i assume that That this feeling will become somewhat widespread and when that happens he's going to have to find some other way to deal with people other than just hectoring them and yelling at them.
3: Right. I mean he's clearly turning the press into his next his next rival. Now Hillary Clinton is gone. Yesterday, he was talking about the press as being crooked. So that's and and the press makes for a pretty good foe because it is despised. I mean, the public's ratings of trustworthiness on the part of the press are like, lower than they've ever been. They're below 40% at the moment. That's a very tempting and um, profitable dynamic for him to set up. And we'll see like how far it takes him, because in the end, it does seem like a game that would get pretty old.
4: And I would offer just this one thing, which is, I think the way the press uh, avoids being used as the foil I've mentioned it a billion times, not taking the bait, but I think also is focusing on the stuff some of the stuff we've tried to be focusing on, which is what are the what are the actual real stories about things that are happening that are affecting and happening and affecting real people. You can get into a rabbit hole debate about whether Donald Trump did or didn't on a phone call say something to the Argent- Argentinian government that essentially becomes a platform for him to bash the press. Whereas over something that most people will be like, why are they having this huge debate in public? Whereas a piece about Mm -hmm. the changes at the civil rights division and the way in which that affects people's lives, it won't get as much coverage. um, But that's the stuff that matters to people. And that over time, one would hope since that's the thing we're supposed to be doing anyway, will make the press. And I think it's why subscriptions are going up
1: is that um, people worry about the things that will affect their real life. Now, let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're uh, contemplating how to make your golf course look even more beautiful, you're having a drink, discussing that with uh, the little Bazelons, Emily, what will you be chattering about?
3: <laughs> As they drink away. I am kind of obsessed with voting rights at the moment, and there are two things happening in the country that I'm watching. One is in North Carolina, where Governor McGrory lost the election by, I think, six or 7,000 votes and is refusing to concede and has instead brought a lot of voter fraud accusations to local election boards, asking them to recount, to reexamine their election results. And these local election boards, which are Republican-controlled, are standing up for their own integrity and saying that there is nothing to these accusations. But it appears that McGrory is trying to create enough questions and chaos that he could then invoke a north carolina law in which the legislature actually gets to decide the election instead of the electorate and if legislature were to take that step and decide that mogory the republican won instead of i think roy cooper is the democratic challenger that decision by the legislature would not be reviewable in the state courts the only remedy would be a federal lawsuit to try to stop this from happening That's kind of breathtaking to me that this democratic election seems not necessarily like it's going to go through. And on top of that, there's talk of um, McGrory appointing two additional Supreme Court justices before he leaves office because the current Supreme Court in North Carolina is split three to three. Democrats, Republicans, the seventh seat was won by a Democrat in the November election. And so this is a court packing plan to prevent the Democrats from controlling the state Supreme Court against the will of the voters. That's all just crazy.
1: I—that That is insane
3: it is insane did you know that story yeah, it's really crazy I like it, it. i not know the court packing. yeah it's yeah <laughs>
1: it's all true <laughs> so what you're saying is On yeah. a
3: slightly happier i know yeah i know it's like it's i mean i really feel like it would be a really big story if this wasn't such an incredibly insane moment in american politics and it should be a really big story because it is truly alarming On a happier note, in Wisconsin, a three-judge panel just really for the first time in 30 years rejected a state redistricting plan for partisan gerrymandering, meaning that these judges said, like, we're not looking at um, problems with diluting the power of Black and Hispanic voters. We're talking about pure straight up, you guys gerrymandered the hell out of these districts to to the extent that Republicans benefited so much that we can't allow this plan to go Forward And the judges, for a long time, the problem with partisan gerrymandering cases has been to draw a line. There's always some gerrymandering. So how do you say there's too much? But there's this formula the judges use to calculate the benefits that Republicans were getting, um, or um, I should say that evidence was presented to them, and they found that persuasive. And that's a really interesting potential avenue for addressing these issues of partisan gerrymandering, which Democrats have benefited from in a few states but really have been a tremendous benefit in state and congressional elections to Republicans in several states. So that's a good one to watch.
4: Perfect example of watching things that are important not just things that are shiny. Thank you, John. Thank you. What's your chatter? <laughs> so my chatter is two things. One, it's Thanksgiving. So um I am grateful for Emily and David and Kevin and Jocelyn. And also all of the, you, uh, our wonderful listeners who A, are constantly stopping uh, me and saying nice things about the show, which is also, which is nice, but also in this time of shifting norms, high anxiety, complicated things that can't be resolved in 10 seconds, likely a narrative of this administration that's going to go on for four years, perhaps eight, the mostly the room that the people who uh, who at least <laughs> write to me and stop allow us to try to puzzle through all this stuff one of the dangers of what we are facing in the challenge to our uh, profession is that nobody, because it's all become so partisan, nobody allows any room for anything. Motives are instantly questioned. Anything you say is immediately discounted. And that leads t- leads to sourness, cynicism, no room for reason, and no learning. And so it's um, really gratifying that listeners allow us this room to fumble about. now. Uh, my other thing, though, is is in reading a review of Alexandra Zapruder's book, 26 Seconds, she's the granddaughter of the famous filmmaker of the, of the Zapruder film of the 26 Seconds that captured JFK's assassination. And I was reading Joyce uh, Carol Oates' review of the book. It's a very favorable review and i was just reminded of a couple things one the story is basically about the film but also the film's role in the family and the way in which a name zapruder of course being so distinctive that the way in which that name and the film have you know shaped the life of the granddaughter who wasn't around for when it was first shot. And then also just the being reminded about that film and its place in history. Of course, this is the 53rd anniversary of President Kennedy's death. The sense of turmoil, the conservative outrage at this president who was taking us towards communism was so white hot in Dallas when he went to visit. It's a nice reminder that we have been through moments of turmoil in our history and emerged from them. Obviously, I'm not suggesting that I mean, obviously we emerged in that instance through uh, one of the most horrible things to happen in modern American history, but i'm it was just a reminder of of history's broadness, but I think also as a moment in media and conspiracy, the twenty six films uh, twenty six seconds I feel like is our first viral piece of video which we now have every week, or you know multiple times a week and just seeing it as the beginning of this new portion of our national conversation which is about these this piece of what looks like absolute evidence and which nevertheless can then spawn thousands of different theories about a thing that we're all watching with our same two eyes anyway so the review made it seem like a a very interesting book
1: my chatter also double chatter first atlas obscure has a new podcast it's called horizon line You can get it in the iTunes store wherever you get your podcast. It's amazing. It's true stories of adventurers uh, told by a couple of my colleagues, Dylan Thuris and Ellen Morton. First one is about this Swedish explorer who attempted to get to the North Pole by balloon in 1897, which spawned one of the most amazing photographs ever taken. It's just the story of it is beyond belief. It's an incredible story. So you should listen to Horizon Line, leave a comment and rating while you're there. The other thing I want to chatter about briefly is I was pointed to by my daughter, a great Twitter account, which I think is a 538 account called Census Americans, which is simply tweeting out every hour or so uh, census data of one individual American not by name, but it says like, I am married. I was married at age 55. I, my commute is less than three hours a day, or my commute is, you know, 15 minutes a day. I commute by car. It's usually just a few sentences, usually about their commute, their marital status, their work status. I'm unemployed and looking for work. And it's fantastic. It's just a tiny little portrait of, of a fellow citizen. Our interns, Kevin Townsend, our producer, Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is chief content officer for Panoply, the network we're part of. iTunes.com slash Panoply is where you'll find all the Panoply podcasts. Our show page is slate.com slash GabFest. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at slategabfest, and our email address is gabfest at slate.com. Please subscribe to the GabFest in iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there search for Slate Political Gap Fest in the iTunes store. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you next week.